Well, this past week, my oldest daughter turned 13. <laughs> so I have a teenager. We have a teenager in our house, so you know how to be praying for us. And uh, no, we're, we're so excited for Lilia to jump into these exciting years. We know it's going to be great. But I took her out for dinner as a little celebration of her 13th birthday, and we had a little time to kill before our reservation. And so we went to the mall, and we just were kind of walking around the mall, and, and I was just kind of reminiscing of, you know, that mall, of course, which is now Destiny USA, that used to be Carousel. That's how it started. And it, it actually opened when I was almost the exact same age as Lilia is now. And I tried to explain to her how exciting it was when it first opened and what it was like to walk through those big uh, halls and, and shop. And we were walking by all the anchor stores that are slowly closing, sadly, and she was asking me about that. And so I began to say, well, you know, with Amazon and online shopping and it's just, you know, these, these brick and mortar stores are having a hard time staying open. And she said, I still love going, though. I like looking at stuff. And how many of you, you still like to go shopping? You like to hold stuff and touch stuff. And, 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 and there's certain things where I don't want to, I, I use Amazon a lot, maybe too much. But there are some things I, I wouldn't buy on Amazon. I'm not going to buy a house without seeing it first, right? I don't want to drive a car or buy a car without sitting in it and, and driving it first. And, and there's certain things that I want to see it. Even when I go to a new restaurant, I, I hope that there's pictures in the menu sometimes because it's one thing to read the description, but it's another thing to see the plate. So I'll go on to Yelp and try to find pictures. Or I'm that person who's looking at other people's tables like what, and asking the waiter, what is he eating or what is she eating? Because it, it might look like something in the description, but I want to know what does it actually look like? And this morning as we're in our series, Radical Generosity, and we, we're going to talk today about what a radical life is I want to answer the question, what does a radically generous life look like? What, how do we actually know that we're living our lives in a radical, generous way? And so we're going to look at a passage this morning that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, and we're really going to answer three questions. The first question is, what does a radically generous life look like? And, and this morning, by the way, we're not talking about money, so you can let go of your purses and your wallets. We're talking about l the way in which we live so what does a radically generous life look like? Number two, how come you and I don't live that way most of the time? And then number three, how can we? So those are the questions we're going to answer, uh, ask and answer. And the first point this morning is that we're going to see from Philippians 2 is the beauty of radical living. That there is a beauty, an attractiveness to living our lives this way. And beginning in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2, Paul says... So if there is any encouragement in Christ or any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself." And let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Listen, one of the things that I, I love about the Holy Spirit is that he can lead us in the moment just as well as he can lead us in advance. And every fall I sit down and I talk with our pastors and I talk with our leaders. And every fall we put together our sermon series for the next calendar year. So basically what we're talking about this morning has been planned since last September, October. But the Holy Spirit, I believe, knew what we needed to hear this moment as a country, as a community, and as a church. 
And I'm really grateful that the Holy Spirit can lead us this way and, and speak to us. And he's been speaking to me this week through this passage. And I trust this morning that he's going to speak to you. And the first thing that we're going to learn here is the beauty of radical living. And what Paul does here is he gives us really three snapshots of what a radically generous life looks like. And in verse 3, he gives us this first one where he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Sometimes I wish Paul wasn't so absolute. <laughs> Sometimes I wish he used softer language. But Paul doesn't pull any punches. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And by what this implies, by the way, is that, there is, that anything we do can be motivated by Selfish ambition, which is a form of greed or conceit. In other words, Paul doesn't just say do, uh, avoid sinful things with these motivations. He says do nothing, which means that even the good things we do, listen, even the best things we do can come from selfish ambition or conceit. Everything that we do can be informed by these things. Sometimes we do good things, but we're doing them to gain people's attention. Selfish ambition or conceit to get their approval, or to get access into some sort of inner circle or, or some sort of relationship. Sometimes the best things we do are because we want to be seen and noticed for what we do, and there we're doing it from selfish ambition and conceit. Sometimes Christians do their religious duty, but it's because they're in an effort to earn God's love, because they think if they do good things, God will love them more. As long as you're doing things to get something from God, you're not really doing them out of a selfless motivation. You're doing them for yourself, not out of greed. You know, we can be greedy for so many things, so for so much more than just money. We can be, I wrote down some things that we can be greedy for. We can be greedy for attention. There are people who are desperate for attention. They're greedy for it. They, they use their social media platforms to try to get as much attention as they can or the way in which they live or, or, or the, the, things in which, the things they do, the way they talk. We can be greedy for success and personal advancement. We can be uh, greedy for fame and for influence. And Paul here right out of the chute, sort of hits us in the gut and says, do nothing, which means you got to pay attention to every single thing you do and ask yourself the question, why am I doing this thing? Am I doing it out of selfish ambition and conceit, or am I doing it out of a selfless, beautiful, radical living? And this is what Paul sort of confronts us with here. Now, what do we do? What are some things we can do, some practical things to avoid the trap of do nothing from selfish ambition? How do we avoid... Uh, falling prey to this. Two ideas. Number one, we have to find ways to serve behind the scenes. I genuinely believe that. We have to find ways to serve when nobody is seeing us, when it's not rewarding, when no one is applauding us, when no one is, where are the ways in which you are serving behind the scenes? And there are people in our church every week, there's a family that, family that comes here every week and all they do is they clean in the nursery and they clean the toys in the nursery so that every Sunday those toys have been cleaned and sanitized. No, well, I see them, the pastors see them because we're working here, but you don't even know who they are, but they're serving behind the scenes. I know it's not out of selfish ambition and conceit because nobody rewards them for what they're doing. There's people this morning that are serving in the nursery. That's one of the least seen places. The only people who see you are the parents who throw their children at you and say, please take them for the next hour away from me, right? And so, but they're there and they're in there this morning and they're giving an hour of their morning. They're not up on the stage. They're not being seen. You don't get applause. You know, I don't think parents pick up their kids and applaud the nursery workers. You probably should, but I don't think that that's what happens 
Find ways to serve behind the scenes, cleaning, nursery, even people who serve uh, in the media, in the back of the room, who literally you won't see unless you turn around. Those poor media sound people, nobody sees them until there's a mistake, and then everybody in the room turns around and looks right at them, right? Find places to serve where you will not be seen. And and I just want to mention one opportunity that you're going to have. You're going to get an email today or tomorrow. We have a meal ministry right here at Trinity where a family, when when someone's in the hospital or when they have a new baby or when they're just going through a difficult financial situation, we want to provide a series of meals for them to just bless them and encourage them. And that's sort of a behind-the-scenes thing. No one knows that you're doing that. So you're going to get an email today with the opportunity to add your name to that list. And you might say, I'm not a cook. I'm not a chef. Well, listen, nobody's ever turned away a bucket of fried chicken. <laughs> so you, if, you, if you know how to go to the store and buy something, you can be in the meal ministry. So there's ways that we can serve. The, the other thing is we have to find ways, listen to this, we have to find ways and this takes work, we have to find ways to serve people who can never serve us in return. We have to find people who can never serve us in return. Samuel Johnson said that the true measure of a man is how he treats someone who can do him absolutely no good. How do we treat people who can do nothing for us in return? This is how we combat our tendency to do everything from selfish ambition or conceit. The next snapshot that Paul gives us here is also in verse three. He says, but in humility, so he contrasts this, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And I'm telling you, this phrase, count others more significant than yourselves, is there a phrase, a worldview, a perspective that's more contrary to the uh, sort of American society view right now? That I would think about you before myself? That I would count you as more significant than me? We're look out for number one. We're all about what we can get out of every situation and what we, what we want out of every situation. But Paul here, he moves from action to attitude. He moves from talking about what you do to why you're doing it. He says if you're going to have proper humility, it starts with considering and counting others to be more significant than yourselves. We're not wired for this at all. We always consider ourselves first. When you take a large family picture or a large group picture and you finally get your eyes on it, who's the first person you look for? Yourself. How do you decide whether or not you're going to post it online, whether or not you think it's a good picture or a bad picture that should be shunned and never seen again? It doesn't matter if 20 other people in the picture are having a perfect day, perfect hair day, they look amazing, their teeth are shining. If you're doing some goofy look, if you got an extra chin, if something's going wrong in the picture, you're like, this is a terrible picture. We're not using this picture. Why? Because we're wired to process and make decisions based on ourselves, right? And so what Paul teaches here is radical. He's saying there's a way in which we will consider others, but it takes humility. I love this definition of humility from Andrew Murray. I came across it this week. He said humility, listen to this, humility is perfect quietness of heart. When is the last time you and I experienced perfect quietness of heart. And I think what he's saying is the things that make our hearts so loud is pride often. Self-focus, self-obsession. The things that fill up our hearts and our minds often are us focused on ourselves. If you are always focused on others above yourself, then I, I don't think your heart would be as loud, your mind would be as loud. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. And he goes on to say, it is to expect nothing to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and to be at rest when I am blamed or despised. I don't, 
I'm not there. I don't know about you. I, I can't quite wrap my mind around that, but I think he's right. This is the humility. And you know why I think he's right? Because I think he's describing Christ here. Christ was at rest when nobody praised him. And Christ was at rest when he was blamed and despised. And he was the truly humble one. So consider others more significant in humility. And then the, sec- the third thing he gives us in this passage, this quick snapshot, is look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. And if we're going to, if you and I are going to not just consider our interests, but the interests of others, then there's a few things we have to do. We have to know other people. We have to listen to other people. We have to understand other people. We're really good, or bad, depending on how you look at it, at assuming we know things based on a quick interaction. I'm guilty of this as well, you know. Uh, my favorite soccer team is a team in England called Liverpool, and, and whenever I see someone else in public wearing a Liverpool jersey, I immediately create a narrative in my mind about that person, that they've been chosen by God. <laughs> no, I immediately assume they love Liverpool like I love Liverpool. And this is going to be an amazing friendship. Right now, in the middle of Walmart, we're about to build an amazing friendship. And I've had moments where I'll run up to somebody and be like, yeah, Liverpool. And they look at me like I'm crazy. And they're like, what are you, what are you, ta- what are you talking about? Like, yes, we're living in Liverpool. Why are you so excited about it? I'm like, no, you're, you're wearing a Liverpool. And, I'm, and they're like, oh, I, I just got this at the thrift store. <laughs> they're like, they're, somebody bought this for me. I don't know, even know who this team is. This is a soccer jersey I didn't even know. And I'm like, I'm crushed. I'm like, oh, give it to me. I'll just take it from you. You don't deserve to wear that. But I see them wearing something, and I've created this whole narrative in my mind about who they are and what they love and the way in which they live, and often I'm wrong. Now, uh, in a less funny way, we do that about people all the time, whether it's somebody wearing a shirt that supports a politician that you don't support. You don't just simply say, huh, they're wearing a shirt that supports that politician. You, listen, this is true. You build a narrative immediately around who that person is, what they believe, what they think, what their level of education is, whether or not you could ever be friends with them, and how stupid they might be, right? This is what we do. Now, here's all I'm saying. Is it generous? Is that generous? Is that the radical living that Christ calls us to in this passage? You know, this past week, as the, as the laws have changed in our own state, I've walked into Costco's and I look around and some people are wearing masks and some people aren't wearing masks. And I go into Starbucks and I go into Walmart and I go into Target and it's all the same. And it would be very easy for you to look around and go and start to build narratives in your mind based on that decision. First off, you're probably not right all the time because I know people who are vaccinated who will continue to wear their masks in public because that's what makes them comfortable. So to jump to that conclusion is, number one, it's wrong. But then to build a narrative, even if you're right, around why they made the decision that they made is not generous in your spirit towards them. Generous people ask this question. What is an absolutely reasonable motive why someone would choose something differently than me? But we don't start there. We start with what kind of idiot is this person? What kind of fear are they living under? Or what sort of, and that's the way in which we, and Paul is saying here, Look not only to your own interests and preferences and opinions, but you have to look to the interest of others. And when we don't do this, what we do is we see people and we categorize them and we characterize them. And in the process, we demonize them. And what we're doing is we're dehumanizing them. And I think that's a sin. Because when we look at people, we need to see the image of God 
imprinted upon every single person, regardless of the choices that they've made. And I don't, obviously, we don't all agree with each other. I get that. I don't agree with everything that's going on right now. I, I have my own opinions and preferences. But at the same time, I'm going to choose as best as I can by God's grace to be generous towards you if you think differently than me. And, and ask others to, to do the same. And this is what I think the beauty of a radical. In a world where people are living pretty ugly lives a lot of the time, this is the beauty of radical living. All right, the second thing we see in this text is the obstacle to radical living, the obstacle. And, and I want to go back to verse 1 to understand what the obstacle is here. It, Paul, this is interesting the way he starts this passage. He starts it with a bunch of sort of like, hypothetical questions. He's not actually wanting the Philippians to, he's not actually wondering about the answer. So let's read it again. He says, so if, he's asking, if, in other translations say it this way, is there any encouragement in Christ? He's just lobbing it out there. Is there any comfort? Have you experienced any comfort from the love of Jesus? Is there any participation or community in the Holy Spirit? Have you experienced any of the affection of Jesus and the sympathy of Jesus? And then he goes on in verse 2, so if, if, if those things are, if, if your answer is yes, complete my joy, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And, and those five if clauses contain five blessings that all Christians, including the Philippians, had in common because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul sort of forces the Philippians to answer the same question five different times. He's trying to drive a point home. So this is maybe how we could read it. Is Paul, is there any encouragement in Christ? The Philippians, yes. Paul, is there any comfort from love? The Philippians, yes. Is there any participation in the spirit? Yes. Is there any affection? Yes. Is there any sympathy? Yes. Like, Paul, we get your point. Yes, yes, yes. What Paul is doing here is he's using a series of questions to build a case that leads to an inevitable conclusion. Here's how we do it in our own house. Dinner time. Dinner's done. Dishes are dirty. And, and the girls don't want to wash them. And I'll say something like this. Did I work, do I work to earn the money to buy this food? Yeah. Did we go out and purchase this food? Yeah. Did your mom make this food? Yes. Do we provide the house where we ate this meal? Yes. Then do the dishes. <laughs> so we're building a case on all these questions that they have to say yes to so that then we can say to them, then you do your part too. And this is what Paul's doing here. Is there love found in Christ, affection, sympathy, fellowship? Have you found those things in Christ? Then be of the same mind. And be united and love one another. So what this means is that when we forget any of those five blessings, when we forget that those things are true, we will never live out verses two through four. You cannot avoid doing things from selfish ambition and conceit. You cannot consider others before yourself. You cannot live in humility if you forget these five blessings. So I want you to see these five blessings broken down here in a list of uh, encouragement, comfort, participation in the spirit, affection, and sympathy. And what Paul does here is brilliant because these five things really answer some of the most fundamental human questions that we have. Encouragement means am I seen by someone and am I valuable to someone? And Paul is saying, you've seen by God and you're valuable to God. Comfort is, uh, do, am I alone in my pain? And, and Paul's reminding him, you're not alone in your pain. The participation in the spirit is the question, do I belong somewhere? Do I have a place to be? Affection is, am I loved? And sympathy is, am I understood? So am I seen? Am I, am I noticed? Am I valuable? Am I alone in my pain? Do I belong somewhere? Am I loved Am I understood? Those are pretty fundamental human being questions, right? 
We spend our entire lives trying to, and what Paul is saying is you have all of that in Christ. So what happens when we forget that we have these things in Christ? And the short answer is we will turn anywhere and everywhere to get them. We'll turn to anything. If we forget we have it in Christ, so encouragement. If we forget that we have encouragement in Christ, then what we'll do is instead we'll find something that we're good at and we'll build our identity on that. We'll build our value on our ability to sing, on our ability to play a sport, on our ability to make people laugh, on our ability to make money. Whatever it is, we will look to that thing and we'll forget we have that in Christ, our established value, and we'll try to build it somewhere else. If we forget that we have comfort from Christ and we're not alone in our pain, we will spend our entire lives either wallowing in our pain or trying to convince other people that we are in pain because it's our pain that brings attention to our lives. If we forget that we have participation in the spirit, then what we have to do is we have to build other little communities of people, and those communities have to attack other communities that are different than it because we're trying to create this sense of participation and belonging. If we forget that we have affection in Christ, then not only will we look for love everywhere else, we will be unable to freely love other people because the source from which we're loving will be so dried up and limited. And if we forget that we have sympathy, uh, the understanding of Christ, then we will demand that other people not just understand us, but that they agree with us. In his little book, um, Gospel Forgetfulness, I think it's, oh, Self-Forgetfulness, Tim Keller gives this very helpful illustration. He talks about a billionaire who's in a taxi cab in New York City. And as the billionaire gets out of the taxi cab, it's a, it's a $4 bill. And he accidentally hands the guy a 20 instead of a 5. And he gets out of the taxi and gets into the building. He looks in his hand. He goes, oh, my goodness. I gave that guy a 20 instead of a 5. He got 16 of my dollars I didn't mean for him. Or 15 of my dollars that I didn't mean to. And he said, a billionaire at that moment will not lose his or her mind over $15. He will not go and call up the taxi company and say, hey, bring that taxi driver back here to give me my $15 back. He won't go all over the city scourging all the different taxis looking for the one that dropped him off. He won't do it. Why? Because he or she is way too rich to lose their joy and their mind over $15. And Keller's point is this. If you are in Christ, if you've experienced his love, his affection, and his comfort, you're way too rich in Christ to lose your joy, to lose your mind, and to lose your hope over the things of this world. You're too rich. You have the riches of Christ's righteousness. You're accepted by the Father, and you're gonna lose your joy because this person doesn't accept you the way that they wish, or the way that you wish that they would? And And this is what Paul's doing here. It seems like a really hard text, but he starts by saying, here's where it all flows out of, all the blessings that you have in Christ. And so what is the obstacle of radical living? The obstacle of radical living is gospel forgetfulness, that we forget the blessings we have in Christ. We forget how rich we are in Christ. We forget how right we are in Christ. And then we spend our entire lives trying to get it from everyone else and everywhere else, and all of a sudden we find ourselves doing everything from selfish ambition and conceit, the obstacle to radical living. And then the last thing we see here is the source of radical living. And 
This is the rest of the passage, and I love this passage. Let's read it together. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. Look at it. It's yours in your hard efforts. It's yours if you try hard. It's yours if you're really good. No, it's yours in Christ Jesus. You cannot have this mind apart from having Jesus. This mind is yours in Christ Jesus who, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count, or some translations say he did not grasp or hold on to, cling to, demand for himself, equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. I want you to see this as a ladder. Jesus is climbing down one rung beneath the other. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Roman orator Cicero once said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. That's how shameful the Romans thought the cross to be. And Jesus humbled himself to the cross. Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The source of our radical living is Jesus Christ, his life, his example, but also the fact that he did it in our place, that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Look at what Jesus did not do. He did not hold on to equality with God. He left the riches of the throne room of heaven to come down and to be born into the human experience, and not just a human, but to humble himself, to be an obedient human, living according to the will of his Father, obedient all the way to death, even to death upon a cross, the worst death imaginable for a criminal. This is Jesus, what he did for us. And Jesus did not come to grasp and hold on to things, but to give. And the question before us this morning is, are you a grasper or a giver? Is your life and your heart and your home wide open to give, or are you grasping onto things and pulling this experience into your life and this purchase into your life and this person into your life and thinking, if I can just pull all these things close to me, then this will be the beautiful life. And Jesus is saying through Paul, the beautiful life is letting it all go. Are you a grasper or are you a giver? The lowest point of Christ's ascent displayed the highest peak of his love. I'm asking the band to come. We're going to close just a minute in a song. But I want you to, to think about this. Why did Jesus have to go so low? I mean, why not just come as a human and just, why wasn't that enough? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why did he have to die? And if someone is in the bottom of a well and they cannot help themselves or get out or they're in the bottom of a pit, what good would it do for the rescuer to go halfway down the pit? What good would it do for the rescuer to go three quarters of the way down the pit? If the person is at the very bottom of the pit, the only place that the rescuer's work can be done is at the bottom of the pit. And the only place that Jesus' work could be done for us was at its lowest point. Why? Because that's where he found you and I, at the lowest point. Not, not impressive, not righteous, not good, not with our act together. He found you and I at the bottom of the deepest pit. And that's why Jesus had to go so low. 
Because he didn't come just to give us as an example. He came to rescue us. He came to find us and get us and pull us out of the mess in which we were. Our rescue from sin and death required Jesus to go all the way down. And so the source of our salvation is this. We must see Christ. And I want to finish with this quote from a famous preacher, this story from a famous preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, a friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? Seems like a good question. I mean, that's really the heart of this morning's message. How can I be humble? Martin Lloyd said, he felt there was pride in him and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some remedy and I could tell him, do this, do that, do the other, you will be humble. And what I said was, now listen to what he said. This is such a, there's so much wisdom in this answer. He said, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you will soon be proud of doing that. If there's a way to be humble through our efforts, then as soon as we do it, we're not going to be humble anymore. We're going to be very proud of ourselves for doing it. He said, there's only one way to be humble, and it's to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. When you're looking in his face, you can't be anything but humble. That is the only way. And then he said this in closing, humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, when you look at Jesus, you will realize who he is and what he has done, and you will be humble. Pride is high-minded and believes that there are some things that are beneath us, ways that we wouldn't serve and people that we wouldn't serve. But listen, if Christ took off his royal robes and put on a servant's towel to die for us, how can we say that there's anything beneath us? that there's any call to serve or to live in a radically generous way that is beneath us when Christ gave it all up, came to earth to have you and to have me. When we believe that, by God's grace, day after day, we will live in a radical, generous way. And the beauty of your life, I believe, will be seen by your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends. You won't even probably have to tell them about what you believe because they'll just be so blown away by your radically generous life that they're going to ask you what's different about you. God's going to give you those opportunities, I believe. Let's pray together this morning.